Well, everyone, I'd like to share with you this story from a friend of mine named Matt Toombs, who has recently started serving as a missionary in the country of Senegal. He told me a story via email about a Pular woman from a distant village who had a dream one night, and in her dream, God told her to get up the next day and walk until she found a group of white people teaching from a very important book. She was told that she must ask these white people to tell her about the book because it speaks the truth. Well, the next day she got up and told her family. They all laughed at her and thought she was crazy, but she didn't care. She started walking. What just so happened that my friend's organization had a team in a neighboring village doing discipleship training with some of the villagers who had become believers there. So there they were teaching the Bible. And on the final day of training, this Pular woman came wandering into the village where they were teaching the Bible. Now this village was a Sarir village, which is a different language than Pular. The members of the team were the only white people around in that village, so she walked right up to one of my friend's colleagues and said, God told me to walk till I found a white person, and they will show you a book called the Bible which speaks the truth. Are you these white people? But there was a problem, because the woman only spoke Pular, and the only Bible translated into Pular that they had was on a small memory chip, which could only be used on a cell phone. And amazingly, they did have a chip that had the Bible in Pular, but they didn't have a cell phone for it. And this is where my friend came in the story, because he happened to be back in the main city of Chez, and they asked him to search and see if he could find a used cell phone. Well, he went to a store where he had already done some previous business and asked a salesperson where he thought he could get a used cell phone, and the salesman said, wait here, and came back a few minutes later with a brand new LG phone that he gave to him. He said, you've been a good customer to us. So now they had the phone, and my friend raced out, and it takes a while to get out to the villages, but when he finally got out there, he was able to get them the phone, and they put the chip with the Bible on the phone, and the next part of the story, from what I understand, is it got back to her family, but she did not know how to operate the phone. So her uncle, who was a little more technical-minded, helped her. Now, in the process of him helping her, he actually started to read the Bible in Pular for himself. And it's interesting because eventually they got a call from this uncle who said that he doesn't uh, believe in Christ, but... He's been sharing the Bible with his family, and he has a lot of questions about the Bible, but he was fascinated by its teachings. So we've got this man here who is actually sharing the Bible through a cell phone in Pular in a remote part of the world, and it was all because this woman decided to explore and go on an adventure. She heard a voice calling her, and she obeyed that voice. So maybe you can... Look and find ways to do that even in your own life today. Thanks for listening to my story of this great Senegal adventure. This podcast is part of the Christian Geek Central Network at ChristianGeekCentral.com. Hello, and welcome to the Theology Gaming Podcast. My name is Zachary Oliver, the owner and provider of the Theology Gaming blog. With me today are the same special guests we always have. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Makes me feel so normal. That's oh so man! <laughs> well, today we have Ted Loring. Good morning, beautiful. 
Uh, that was awkward. <laughs> and Joshua Collar. Good morning, beautiful. <laughs> you didn't have a song ready for this podcast. I'm very disappointed. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just imitating Ted because he. I think he, it's uh, a country he's song. Show about uh, we need to rib on each other more. So <laughs> stop picking on me, cry baby. Good morning, good morning. <laughs> like there's some country song that says that, like "Good morning, beautiful. How was your day?" Something like that. I, I don't know why he's saying "Good morning." How was your day? Unless maybe he works, maybe he works he at night. To? Who is he talking to? The guy singing I, I, I the song know. or me? You. <laughs> I thought I was talking to you guys. Uh, maybe. That's a, I, I didn't sleep well last night, so you'll have to just bear with me a little bit. I didn't sleep at all, so that's awesome. Oh, You're a wow. partier. I'm crazy. Yeah. Well, it happens. It Dark too Souls. Much, too much Dark Souls. Uh, King of Fighters? No, Dark Souls. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you were serious about wanting to play the whole way through that, weren't you? Yeah. Well, I'm I'm almost there. <laughs> so I think that's a, that's obviously a good segue for uh, what we're actually going to be talking about today. Um, well, Zach actually pitched the idea of just yeah. talking about uh, Dark Souls and uh, the, the the core of what he finds as a central feature of it, which is exploration. Yeah, and exploration is cool in video yeah. games, mostly. Yeah. Well, the central concept of Dark Souls is to die a lot, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what a lot of people say, but I don't I don't really find it that hard. I think it's more about observing things and yeah. paying attention to your surroundings. So, when you're wandering through an environment, it wants you to pay attention to every little detail for combat reasons and for lore reasons and all these other things. So, it ends up being this big huge pile of exploring and searching and figuring out what the heck is even going on and how to do the best thing. So I don't I don't know if there's a lot of video games that really do exploration that well. I mean, Legend of Zelda is one that people always cite, right? Right. But there's obviously... People have also called Dark Souls uh, Legend of Zelda for adults. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> that's, that's a pretty good assessment, I think. But Dark Souls obviously wants to kill you a lot more. Yeah, yeah. Well, well Zach, I watched uh, one of the videos you posted on YouTube where you're fighting like Orstein and Krantz or whatever those two guys' names are. Uh, Orn, was it Executioner Smo and Dragon Slayer Ornstein? <laughs> yeah. yeah, there we go. And uh, I watch videos at bedtime. So, but I saw you die at least three times on that thing, and you got to go all the way back and die again and all the way back. And did you ever actually beat those guys? Yeah, I did. And, and it's on the video? Yeah, it's on the video. Okay, I got to stick around and, and did watch you, Did you actually do that by yourself, or were you, were you uh, um, inviting phantom helpers? Oh, no, no, no. I like doing it solo. I think okay. it kind of cheapens it a little bit if you uh, bring other people in. Yeah. Plus, I'm pretty sure if you summon other people or phantoms into the boss fight, it doubles the HP of the boss. So even if they die, like if they're stupid and they run around <laughs> and try to kill it, and then they die... Then you still got to deal with the fact it has doubled the HP, so I don't bother. And just with that. for the record, too, this is Dark Souls One that yeah. you got really cheap, mm-hmm. and you're playing it on the PC. Yeah, because that mm-hmm. was the only, that's the best version. That's what they tell me anyway. Yeah, the, the Prepare to Die version. Yeah, it's it's pretty good. <laughs> I, I'm surprised because I I played Dark Souls before and and Demon Souls, and I didn't really get it. Yeah, I mean, you can kind of play like a couple hours and, and you don't really understand why people like it. And you're like, what the heck? I'm just dying all the time. I don't know what's going on. Because <laughs> yeah. the game is intentionally obtuse and doesn't tell you anything. 
It yeah. doesn't spell anything in explicit detail, so you, you just kind of have to figure it out on your own. And this is all really cool to me because <laughs> I haven't played a game that has engaged me so much in a long time. It's easily the most uh, the most influential Japanese game uh, series in years, um, especially considering like uh, just the amount of people. Like I think that the the fanfare and the excitement for when Dark Souls Two came out because it came out at the same time as Titanfall. Yeah. actually trumped Titanfall in, in many ways. Which is strange. Oh, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Um, and uh, as I go, as I went to, uh, as I have guys come over for game sale and as I've been invited to other churches, um, I'm always curious what games people are playing. And, and Dark Souls is always what people are, are, are playing and not only excited to talk about, but just want to, want to like share with you their latest experiences <laughs> in the game. It's just, it's just like I want to share my war stories, which... Is weird because you don't always have that with, you know, like people say they, people might do that with Call of Duty, I guess, but um, not quite as much. Yeah, it's, you know, the masochism everybody says that Dark Souls is. If they're like, I hate myself, I want to play some more, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, it, but it's not really like that. I, a lot of it is just kind of you're dying to learn something and then you do it again. And it's like, oh, I learned from that. Now I was stupid. Now I understand why I died. And the other thing that's really notable about about the the core of Dark Souls in my mind is the uh, is the level design, um, and and at least in Demon Souls, I remember it being because I, I haven't played through all of Dark Souls, I've only played a little bit, but Demon Souls um, was really central on on level design, where you go through kind of like uh, a gauntlet of of just hardship and and challenge and death, and then you find out that after you've gone through all of that, you might just turn out to be right back at the beginning of where you were, but you, you now you have a key, so you can go into the big giant room where the boss is, or, or whatever. Yeah, think of think Dark Souls more elaborate than that. Yeah. Even, even more so, because you'll find the shortcut, and then you'll go, oh, I'm in a previous area suddenly, and I didn't even know I was that close. Yeah. It's like yeah. your brain just kind of hits this switch of, like, satisfaction <laughs> that you yeah, found the shortcut. It's, and it's just, it's just plain old brilliant level of design. It's doing something right because people still talk about it. They're still talking about Dark Souls One. Yeah, and it's been a year and a half easy, right? No, Since it's, it's been, been out. Uh, it's actually been uh, two or. I think Dark Souls was fall of twenty eleven. Yeah, that, so, that feels right to me. Yeah. yeah. So people just can't get enough of whatever it does. And again, I've only watched some gameplay, and I'm curious about it. I'll probably give it a try. I think, but. I will probably not last. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's basically a game of figuring it out yourself. And, and yeah. that's kind of a rarity in today's game scene. Like yeah. Nothing is handed to you on a silver platter, and that's why it feels so satisfying when you actually do find out what you're supposed to be doing. And, and that's what the most curious wants. thing about, like, that was a staple of Japanese game design from, like, kind of the beginning. And we yeah. kind of uh, lost that for whatever weird reason. I mean, you go through, like, uh, Nintendo's games of the past... 10 years and you're lucky if you can find one that doesn't force you to go through a tutorial at the moment that you start playing yeah mario galaxy find the yeah. starship find the starship and the bunnies and they tell you to find the starship and then do the butt stomp there's <laughs> like yeah. a thousand dialogue boxes in that game yeah and and the original mario 64 you you kind of just figured out how to do those things yeah which is kind of what i remember doing and yeah. it's nice to have a game yeah. doing that again yeah. Without me having to go through like a billion tutorials to figure it yeah. out. There was a short one at the beginning of 64 with the camera 
turtle guy. Yeah, that was because uh, it was brand new too. It yeah, was not yeah, like anybody was, was using a 3D camera yeah. at all. But I agree with you that, especially it seems like Nintendo games really hold your hand at the very beginning, and it's a, an essential part of game design in my mind that you learn how to play the game just because the designer of the game introduces it at the right time and in the right way that you naturally discover that. I, yeah. I'm thinking of um, uh, the game with the with the cube that <laughs> people Portal? like. Portal, yeah, that was one where each room that you went to was where you learned a new mechanic. Right. So right. it was. It seemed to me to have a natural feel rather than this, I am going to teach you this, how to do this. I'm walking you through step one, two, and three. Yeah. Okay, now go have fun. And Portal did a good job of like um, environmental environmental teaching. Like you, you would walk into a room and you could look at a picture, which mm-hmm. would tell you, uh, it might show you a couple of the tasks that you're going to have to overcome. And uh, you might have like GLaDOS tell you, uh, give you a word like, momentum. And you have no idea what she said. Yeah, yeah, because but you just get the word momentum, and you're like, okay, that might that that's going to be important in solving this. Or she might make a reference to one of the previous test subjects and what happened to them. Yeah, in a yeah. humorous way. I love that Glados. <laughs> <laughs> Even though she's like psychotic. Yeah. When you beat the game and she sings that song at the end, I love that. That song is the <laughs> best song. Yeah. Well, I never got the kick, so it's unfortunate. The cake yeah. is a lie. Yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's one of those fun little memes that is always funny when you get, like, five years after it's already lost its its cultural relevance. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely dead. It's definitely dead and buried and in the ground. I'm bringing it back. The cake it's, is it's dirty. Like wearing an arrow to the knee t-shirt now. <laughs> the cake is dirty. We can't even brush it off. It's covered in dirt. It tastes awful. The cake is stale for sure. At you this point. Nobody wants a big bite of that cake. Yeah. <laughs> so, you guys are getting me hungry. Stop it. That's a cake. That, that's a, a good point. Um, I'm, I'm also thinking about like uh, how we've been talking about like experimentation and exploration as a central facet to not only game design and a part of what gaming is is all about, at least in my mind. Um, but uh, how that is in theology. And how very much uh, for for us as we become students of the word, uh, to use some good Christianese, um, <laughs> we uh, we we actually have to very much kind of like read around and and get a very wide diversity of of understanding of things sometimes to truly understand why Jesus said uh, a lot of the things that he said or why why Paul said some of the things that he said. Yeah, you know what? There's a central framework. I think it, all of us in this particular group here, mm-hmm. we all believe in the central nature of the gospel itself, right? Mm-hmm. As in Jesus Christ, you know, comes to earth, incarnation, dies and then ro- rose again, mm-hmm. brings salvation to the world, that sort of thing. We we all kind of basically Don't have forget that. ascension. Yeah, and ascension. That, that, that's that's one, a little bit of the weirder one. Yeah, we all have that same core, but yeah, yeah. even though we all have this central tenet. We all have a lot of variety surrounding this central core. Mm-hmm. And when I think of theology, I think of lots of different ideas and ways of attacking central ideas in different ways and in different angles. So, 
for me, I grew up in a Baptist context. Mm-hmm. I'm very familiar with evangelical theology and that sort of thing. And I know a lot from my theology school teachings, that sort of thing. I know stuff from, you know, outside like Karl Barth, and I know stuff from Reformed theology like John Calvin. So I've got like, it's kind of this wealth of bizarre experiences from different angles. Mm-hmm. And I always fall more on the conservative side of things, as they might say. But I also want to read the liberal stuff so that I understand where they're coming from, yeah. even if I don't really necessarily agree with them. But we're yeah. all in kind of the same framework. We just have to figure out what's right and what's wrong within that framework. Yeah. yeah. It's, it is really, really helpful to just simply listen to people who have very different opinions than your own. Yeah, and you're um, charismatic, right, Josh? Um, we I mean, identify you that charismania. Charismania. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I would say, I would say that my my, uh, my all, all of my my core formation has has been in the charismatic tradition. But um, when I was uh, I grew up in Methodist and Brethren in Christ, um, and a little bit of Presbyterian, <laughs> um, and so those were those were some of my like uh, my, my growing up experiences were in, in those those environments. But my like since I really just connected with the heart of God and just like fell in love with Jesus, it was within my, my uh, charismatic church family. Um, but I also find that there's some really, really, really key uh, theological things that I, I would say are, are partial to myself and maybe set me apart a little bit, even within my church family. Um, like for example, um, I was kind of involved in like the emerging church movement, if you want to call it that, or at least like very, I found it very, very engrossing and engaging because the the core tenet of even of uh, emergentdom, which is kind of a funny thing because there isn't really core tenets, uh, was was right. um, learning from other church traditions and see and kind of filling in the void for where you're what, what you don't know. So it made me very much more uh, open to hearing from. Um, I guess just about everybody, just kind of like very curious what the Episcopals say, very curious about what uh, Anglicans say, very curious about what Reformed people say, and you know, things along those lines. Yeah, it doesn't seem like Wikipedia knows what the emerging church is either. Right, because it, it, <laughs> it doesn't really exist anymore, and that's just because the, the people found that the terminology was kind of useless, um, and that uh, it just... Some people who were emergent were really, really, really off their rocker, and some people who were emergent were just kind of like people who had who were part of the the, the common church tradition, but would veer out and be very curious to listen to uh, cultural criticisms of uh, of Christianity or, or whatever. Um, and so, I that that was an import, uh, kind of a a part of my formation, um, and I'd say even even. At least to a similar degree was like Messianic Judaism, uh, which is the the tradition of um, basically just understanding G- G- uh, Yeshua through a uh, Hebraic context mindset, and um, and that comes with a lot of different different approaches to Christianity, and wouldn't even call it Christianity for the most part. Huh. Like one thing that's that's kind of a, a surprising aspect of of um, of Messianic Judaism is that they don't often use the word the cross. They like to use the word the tree. Yes, um, this is familiar to me. I remember there was an organization in my church, or that came to one of my churches. It's called uh-huh. Jews for Jesus. 
Yeah, right, Jews for Jesus right. is a little different from from Messianic Judaism because they that their framework is is re- remotely similar and still very Jewish in some ways. Yeah, but, but one um, is Judaism and one is Christianity, and they're they're pretty different, right? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. See, this is where the lines kind of blend a little bit. Sure, sure, exactly, and and I'd say that the biggest difference is that like um. The, the focus is a lot more on the, the, the Hebrew holidays, the, the, the biblical holidays, I dare say. Ooh, um, ooh. <laughs> Shots fired. Yeah. So, like, uh, a good uh, a key example to that would be, like, my personal favorite holiday is Passover. Um, and the reason why is because Jesus celebrated Passover, and that's where we get the Lord's Supper from. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> shots fired. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Stop it! But, Controversy uh, is not something we want on this show. <laughs> yeah, but in, in any in any case, um, just saying like there there for for me personally this this subject of of uh, ecumenical diversity um, uh, really rings a bell considering it's just a very exciting and fascinating subject to me uh, and I find that there, a lot of the time the the less popular of Church traditions are the ones that I find not only the most interesting, but the ones who have uh, a lot to contribute to those who are really unfamiliar with them. And I'm not saying like the the, the cultish ones, but the ones that have a like. I'm not saying like I I, I find anything really useful from uh, yeah the bad the ones, ones, as Josh would say, the bad ones. <laughs> the bad ones. Don't label yeah, anything that's, that's specific. That's, that's kind of that's kind of rude for me to just throw that out there like that, but. <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, okay. So Ted, you are a Baptist. Is that a good guess? No, no. no. You would say you said were or or am or how did you we're ask that closely question? aligned with? Well, <laughs> you know, again, it's an exploration of of thought as well. Um, although I never had any real connection to the emergent churches as I knew it, which I understood that to be kind of a, a result of the postmodern era uh, where people started to understand uh, Christianity in terms of individual stories, but not always an overarching uh, truth that, uh, because everybody has their own truth, everybody has their own story. And that that was one of the criticisms, definitely, of of, uh, what people, how how emergent, the emergent church was understood, and mostly the lack of of, uh, quality discipleship within. Yeah. So I would say as far as my journey goes, my exploration in, in life certainly grew up uh, in, a, in a Methodist church. And probably around 14 or 15, my mom started going to a Pentecostal church. So I went to, with her to, to that. And then I actually went to a, a Pentecostal Bible college. So actually I have a kind of a unique perspective on, on, uh, on studies and theology. Um, United Methodist? Or, yes, UMC. Yeah, because okay, I went to United Methodist School, uh-huh. and they seemed very much the opposite of everything that I was thinking. <laughs> so, is this different in the South versus the North? Or what, what are you talking about? What different difference? So, I make sure I can. Um, so, respond. most of the most of the stuff that I learned about United Methodism was mostly leaning towards a more postmodern understanding. I would say so. I would say my early uh, the church that I went to was certainly more along that postmodern, more of a more of a liberal approach to understanding, which is probably why my mom had a reaction to that. Basically, her reaction was a neighbor who invited her to a prayer meeting 
and it was it was charismatic Pentecostal. Uh, she responded to that she actually made a, a commitment to Christ through that ladies group. I saw the change in her life, so I wanted to kind of participate in in her experience. So we found a, a local church. It was Church of God, which is actually sort of a that's charismatic. Yeah, yeah, it's a more extreme version of Methodism as far as theology goes. Of course, oh. Methodists originally were very charismatic. If you yeah. read about them in, in the pioneer the days, the frontier days, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. and in um, in Britain too. Yes, yes. So there actually is. That's one of the things I like about the exploration of of say church history is mm. how all these different Protestant denominations are connected, where they came from, because they all came from something, and usually. Yeah. I've said this before, but it usually it has to do with disagreeing about something. There's yeah. one thing Protestants love to do is disagree about something and split up. It's I mean, in the name. It's in yeah. the name. Yeah, we protest. Protest. It would be amazing what we would do if we really did get ecumenical and work together. Uh, you'd be uh, Catholic. Except that. Well, <laughs> except the core. But um, so I had that up into my, uh, my mid-20s. I was actually a minister in the, uh, in the Church of God. And um, I went through a divorce. I had a, a wife that left me, and it kind of shattered me because I was a little angry about that, that uh, I thought I'd done all the right things uh, and went through a hard time because yeah. of that. So I was I was angry. So I went for a period there where I was more agnostic, but I, I couldn't live as an agnostic. It's, you know, when you know the truth, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. you know, you can try to act nonchalant about it, but... It eventually the truth gets hold of you again, and I just had to uh, to come back. I ended up going to a Presbyterian church for many years that ended up uh, going independent. So where am I in my theological exploration and, and journey? I would say I am a neo-evangelical, kind of like the, the second generation of a evangelical. So when you walk through a church, you just see code. <laughs> well, I would think, you know, just like, you know, this is a generation of that came from uh, Billy Graham's very inspirational uh, message through his life. And it's almost like a, a, the generation after that sort of uh, taking it in, in new ways, different ways, exploring it and stuff like that. Yeah, It, it is on Theopedia, neo-evangelicalism, which is a tongue twister of a word. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that's what I was until uh, it came up in a class, and I was like, yeah. oh, that's cl- the closest thing I've ever heard. Huh. I didn't because- know that was a thing. Yeah, man. Get with it. Join the neo-evangelical train. Because I know like a neo-reformed <laughs> is a thing, too. Oh, yeah? yeah I, 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 my personal favorite are uh, neo-Calvinists. Neo uh, not because I think – not because I necessarily am the biggest fan of, of, of uh, neo-Calvinism, but I just like saying neo Calvinists. My, my neo Calvinism is better is than your neo. <laughs> yeah, because well, we all love the word new. Apparently, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, neo Calvinism is new Calvinism, which is I mean, Dutch Calvinism. <laughs> uh, yeah, labels and words and stuff. <laughs> yeah, but you know, again, when you you said it at the very beginning, yeah, you, know, you look at the core. Uh, the Apostles' Creed would certainly be a good standard core to follow, uh, I think, that covers the, the, the basic tenets of the faith. And then I think it's kind of cool that Christianity does have some gray. You know, it's not exactly everything is cut and dried, black and white. There are areas where you have to think and yeah. you have to decide where you are in, in that. I mean, an el- a, a subject such as baptism, a subject such as uh, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, 
uh, all of those. Which was have, on Passover. Yes, yeah. yes, we, we, we accept <laughs> that. And it's yeah. coming soon. You there's, know. there's not even a formal declaration of what Christians believe until like 300 AD. So that's like 300 right. years yeah. after? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Of course, and it wasn't legal till around 300 years, but yeah. which made it a lot easier to start to argue. <laughs> yeah. Before the first 300 years is kind of they're in survival mode. The church is meeting underground. Uh, there's a, there's times of persecution and there's times where it's kind of just acknowledged, but it becomes more officially recognized. Good old Constantine. <laughs> yeah, but it is true that the canon, at least as far as we know, was pretty well established pretty early, even like 200 yes. years beforehand. We had a pretty good idea, or Christians in general had a pretty good idea of what yeah, counted as scripture and what didn't. Some of the epistles have areas that uh, seem to be the word from hymns that they sung that they used to, to learn some of the tenets of the faith. And I'm thinking in terms of one is uh, the famous kenosis passage from Philippians 2 where it talks about who Jesus was, being in the very nature of God, considered himself nothing, came to this earth, suffered and died. It was, it's, it's just an area where there seems to be an early creed. And there's another one, I think, in, in one of the Peters, just off the top of my head, First uh, Peter or Second Peter, where it seemed like they had something that they all believed to be true. Hmm. And then, you know, as Christianity spread, you get to different regions, you get to different cultures, and that's when the flavors really start happening. It was primarily a, a Jewish religion, right, Mr. Yeah. M. Joshua? Uh, <laughs> up until around that time of, of when the church truly became official and started to expand and became, you know, more Roman, more, <laughs> more Western. So More Roman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, I know a lot of people hate it when we talk about Christendom. At least Protestants yeah. do. Like we're the original church and that kind of thing. But oh yeah, yes, yeah, that like, was. But Christendom was a thing, and yeah. people were in Christendom for like fifteen hundred years. So yeah, exactly. That's like okay. So it wasn't until your particular belief view came along. Before that, everybody else was just destined for hell. Yeah, until they, like, they got your revelation. And uh, but then they'd be like, no, no. When they when you talk about those other people, they were really us. They just didn't know it. You know. Like, yeah, what, we, we existed forever. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you hear all that stuff. So I think that's a little arrogant sometimes to talk like that, to say, oh, I finally have seen it. And everybody else for thousands of years of living and following Christ, they just didn't have it right. But thank goodness for me. <laughs> Good thing we nailed that one. Yeah. <laughs> so have either of you guys read Mere Christianity? I have. Times. Yeah. I read about, uh, maybe I'd say probably about half of it before I realized like I was I was no longer actively like processing the words in it um huh. it, it was just it was just a hard harder read i was trying to read it with others and it's a you know, book that's like I medicine you get you have to take it in a dose and yeah you, you mean c.s lewis in general or just mere christianity uh i would agree that that some some of c.s lewis is is very very uh very heady uh and very written within a modern uh modernist yeah. context well a medieval literature phd guy Probably yeah. will sound like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, if you yeah, read like, um, I think that's... yeah, if you read Tolkien's a uh, nonfiction stuff, like actual academic papers or descriptions of stuff, it's like you really have to figure out what the heck he's saying. He writes a lot better in that than he does in Lord of the Rings. I know bias, but <laughs> yeah. Wow, <laughs> you do not, you do not degrade the sacred name of Tolkien and Lord of the Rings. I'm going to right now. Tolkien is a terrible writer of novels. 
Oh. He is a good historian, but he is not a good novelist. So anyway, um, <laughs> yeah. we'll save uh, that for a future podcast. The thing, that, the thing that's the Tangent. most important, and the reason why I bring up mere Christianity in particular is because anytime that, I, that I'm talking about um, the ec- ecumenical nature of the church or um, just the, the church universal, I think it's really, really important. Just the key word, the, the th- my favorite thing about that book is the name, mere Christianity. What is What is the fundamental core of what it means to be a Christian. Yeah. It uh, takes which, him 300 pages or a, a bunch of radio broadcasts to get there. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, yeah, maybe, but I think that he really at least establishes the theme in the, in the upfront of the book, which is just to say that like, um, if you understand who, um, who Jesus is, you'd make him your Lord, you know, that sort of thing that that's, that's what it, it means to be a Christian at, at its, at its fundamental level. Yeah, um, I'm, he, I'm paraphrasing and probably a little inaccurate. The way he described it in the prologue, I believe, was he's trying to get people to come into this great hall yeah. that is mere Christianity. And then there's all these doors, you know, within there that can be your whatever fits your fits you. Really, it's probably the best yeah. way to say it. But he's just trying to get the, people into the hall. Yeah, there's like yeah. a billion metaphors in that book. Yeah, I, yeah. I imagine it like, like a hall in Hogwarts. <laughs> yeah, and then I see you- like this old giant dusty church, you know, with a high ceiling and all that stuff. Maybe a little hogwarty. Yeah. Yeah. And he was probably thinking of that because he's Anglican, so yeah, high church Anglican. I'm pretty- and he was a huge Harry Potter fan. Yeah, <laughs> so uh, retroactively, retroactively, yeah. he said, "I love Harry Potter books." C.S. Lewis. <laughs> There's a quote somewhere. I'm sure I just can't find it. I saw it on the internet. It must be true. <laughs> He was Potter before Potter was cool. Yeah, he gave you a bit of his orange, and he expected some back. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I kind of see your point on – I, I can probably talk about Christianity for a long time, so you're going to have to get me off of it. But there are a lot of chapters. There are short chapters, but some may not be needed. But definitely like the first half I think is, has really got some really good critical thinking, just mm-hmm. some good ways to, to evaluate it. But all that said, he wasn't being a theologian in that book or even a scholar. I think he's just trying to be almost like a friend uh, using his unique uh, brain to describe things the way he, he sees, sees yeah. Christianity to be. Because yeah. theologians tend to be really bad writers. <laughs> this is almost always true. In well, I hate to say it, but you know, you have to consider the subject matter sometimes. I mean, yeah, well, I'm going to completely dissect something. It's and, like reading Thomas Aquinas. It's like, Either you really love medieval theology or you just hate yourself because there's like two <laughs> ways to go about it. And yeah. this giant – the sum of theology, that's that's yeah. the name of the big book. It's like millions of words long and it's like here is this question and they all go in this strange Aristotelian way. You have to do the – first is the question then the argument and then oh. going on and on and on. And you know, a lot of people have likened it to – you know, asking how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, it. Yeah. <laughs> which is not a question he really asked. But Talk about tangents, right? I mean, yeah. that's yeah. a theological tangent if there ever was one. You know, will we defecate in heaven? You know, these sorts of questions that I'm pretty sure I'm not interested in. Yeah, but that sounds answers. like the kind of questions that, that create the, the framework for, for the Noah movie, which I, I, <laughs> I, I honestly really, really loved. <laughs> well, ta- just, just one more thing before we get to the Noah movie. But uh, Thomas Aquinas is the basis for most of Roman Catholic theology right now. 
So even though he asked a lot of crazy questions <laughs> and gave answers, mm-hmm. a lot of what Roman Catholics are now is a lot based on Thomas Aquinas, at least since the 1800s or so, mm-hmm. even though he wrote in the 1200s. So anyway, to the yeah, Noah movie. I, I think so. I think he's a key, key part of it yeah. for sure. To the All Noah right. movie with its crazy rock angels. So uh, I'd say that that at a, at a at a core level, the the dealing with the dealings with the Watchers, um, in in uh, it's the like Noah the Book movie, of Enoch all over again. It's is, El Shaddai. Uh, it's very very similar to El Shaddai. So if you played El Shaddai, are we talking about a game or a book or what? No, the movie. The movie. The the movie? movie? Noah, film. Oh, the new oh. movie Noah. Okay, all right. I, I have yeah. my context now. So go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So um, I'd say that if you liked. The, the El Shaddai game, uh, you'll, you, you'll probably love Noah. If you hated the El Shaddai game, you probably won't like Noah. <laughs> okay. Interesting. Pro tip. Pro, Pro tip. tip, yeah. yeah. Um, but I don't yeah, know no, what to make of that then because I don't know how I felt about the game. <laughs> <laughs> I feel so ambiguous. <laughs> yeah, ambiguous. Yeah, no. Um, the, I mean, just the, the, the core of the, the Noah movie is is trying to um, it's part, people have been going on on rabbit rabbit rampages about uh, how anti-theistic um, Darren Aronofsky is, and they don't know anything about this guy. Um, and and you know they're like he's you go on Facebook, and I'm sure you've seen you know the movie's made by an atheist. They can't possibly say anything good about God. Um, and that's and that's just kind of extraordinarily reductive of, of the fact that. Darren Aronofsky is Jewish, uh, and and it doesn't even mention the fact that he's Jewish at all. It isn't a part of a uh, a tradition and culture of of uh, wrestling with and discussing and arguing through the scriptures and dealing with uh, the, the 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 core tensions of the stories of the of the text, um, which is a part of uh, the the culture. If you've ever been to a seder meal for Passover, you know the entirety of it is about regardless of where everyone is in the family, whether they believe in God or not, you're going to, you're going to discuss the story of Moses. Um, you're going, you're going to discuss the Exodus at large and you're going, and, and you're going to go on a million different rabbit trails. Um, and so very similar to, to, to the, 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 the Jewish tradition of, of immersing yourself in the story, seeing yourself as a, as a key participant of the story the, the, the movie Noah um, puts you in that tension and adds a, a number of what ifs. What if this? What if that? And what if, uh, you know, if you had to be the one person who heard from God and were the one last righteous man on earth, quote unquote, and you found out and realized how unrighteous you are, would you completely lose hope in all of the future of humanity? <laughs> so let's, let's just, I'm going to give you a scale here. It's called the biblical scale. How, how true to uh, the biblical story is it uh, in a 1 to 100 percentage range? In spiritually, probably 50%. And then accuracy-wise, probably not at all. No, no, I, I disagree. I disagree. Okay, if you have a central antagonist to the Noah story, then it's kind of weird. <laughs> and if you have Methuselah who has a flaming sword... Then it's also kind of weird. <laughs> the, those are all those are all superficial details, not that, that like in my in my opinion, like those those are those are interpretive like qualities. What that you're when you're fleshing out a story, like the, those aren't the important things. The important thing is is it true to the core theme of the story? Is to it? me, that's 
What's that? Is it? I mean, well, uh, Noah's not really Which a long story, story yeah. I think, is the issue, right? So yeah. if you're going to make it into a film that's like two and a half hours long, you got to add a lot of stuff. <laughs> and you yeah, got to I hope there's of, a chase yeah. sequence. And you have to extrapolate, like, okay, how does Noah feel, right? Because otherwise the actor has no direction. He has to right. know, like, what does Aronofsky want Noah to feel in this circumstance? Well, and, so, and one thing that's yeah. important to know about Aronofsky is that before he was making films, he wrote a brilliant essay that won awards about about Noah. Huh. Um, so this is, this has been something that's been on his heart throughout, like probably his whole life. And it was, it's very clear to me that it's a passion project that's really meant to, to cast you into the tension of, um, of, of, I mean, all of Aronofsky's films deal with sin, death and judgment. Like that's, that's the, the consequences that that's kind of like the theme of all of his movies. Um, even, even like, like even going back to pie, um, the, the, his his first uh, major film, and, and I, I could I could talk Darren Aronofsky for a long time, but the the <laughs> the main the main thing about Noah is that it's about the tension of all of humanity is being destroyed. It's judgment, and how do how does one process this? How does one process the entire destruction of 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 the known world and? Where does that leave you? And I think that that from from like that fundamental level, like some people have said that they felt like God was cast as kind of a bad guy. Um, I know some Christians who, who are, I'm friends with who said that, and I I, I disagree with that. Hmm. Um, I thought that I, it, it ends with Noah drunk and naked, um, and that's what's. Re- I mean, not not. Ends, that's, ends. Accurate <laughs> that's accurate biblically. That's um, accurate biblically, and it ends ultimately with him. Um, uh, Handing the 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 covenant of God to the next generation, and God um, confirming that with rainbows, and like you know, that's that's accurate biblically. <laughs> yeah. um, there was yeah. a, there, there there was more than one rainbow, so you can imagine the double rainbow guys coming out of nowhere oh, and saying, "We're what does across it the sky." <laughs> <laughs> it was like a quadruple rainbow. It it it, it meant a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it was a big rainbow. <laughs> so you know. Yeah. So, but um, it's like okay. So if Noah is a historical narrative, then yeah. I mean, there's a lot of insertion of stuff into yeah, the film. Yeah. But if you're just looking at it from perspective of what is the heart of the story, then it might fit. <laughs> Depends. Yeah. Depends yeah. on what you want to emphasize and what you don't. Yeah. But yeah, um, I, this is interesting because uh, we're on our theme of exploration here. So yeah. there's yeah. a lot of room to move stuff around yeah. and then have people see the Noah story in a different way than you might otherwise have seen it. And I'm yeah. all for that. And I know it even has like a disclaimer in the trailer of it or, or whatever. So I'm automatically prepared for a movie like that to not be something that a, a conservative biblical evangelical yeah. might think is yeah. a great movie. I mean, I saw the black Swan, so I'm like, okay, the person yeah. who made the black Swan made Noah. Yeah. So I, yeah. I know what I'm expecting, which is craziness. So, uh, now <coughs> I got one. I'm sorry. I got one thing sure. on my head. And I just, but uh, it reminds me in a sense, but it's probably better, better made. But in the two thousands, early uh, years of 2000, there was a made for TV movie based on Noah featuring John Voight of all people. <laughs> He played the part of Noah, and it was, again, made for TV, yeah. but they did 
essentially told the story of the flood and all of that. And yeah. I guess they didn't have enough time or enough material to fill up the whole movie. So they went into another chapter of Noah going to rescue his nephew Lot from the city of, of Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> and, and I was watching that whole thing with, the, with his wife, uh, Lot's wife, turn into a pillar of salt and all that stuff. And then what? I said, wait a second. <laughs> Something's wrong with this Lot. story. <laughs> Lot was Abraham's nephew. He wasn't well, even that was Noah's a couple, nephew. A thousand years later, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Noah transported through time. I mean, yeah, it was it was unbelievable. But it's interesting how long it took for my brain to register that. I'm just listening to it, you know. Yeah. yeah. yeah I'm just, oh, like, and then Noah parted the Red Sea. You know. I mean, what's next? Uh, <laughs> this is working for me. <laughs> <laughs> I think Noah is good in this part. So that's just you know, movies are an interesting medium. They're a very creative, explorative medium, medium, and there's a lot of room for that. And nothing is ever going to replace the sacred page. Yeah. The scriptures are the authority. The movies based loosely on the scriptures are not my authorities. Yeah. yeah. If you're yeah. looking to a movie for authority, you need to um, not do that. <laughs> one thing that one thing that Noah does way better. <laughs> exactly. Than every Sunday school room ever made. Is it's a much more accurate depiction of the the judgment and terror of the story of Noah mm-hmm. than the happy rainbow animals sitting on a tiny little boat. Yeah, but that's accurate <laughs> in a different way. Yeah, those are the things you take away from the movie. Yeah, maybe some of that imagery and that kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah. where's the happy Noah movie? Are we gonna get that soon? <laughs> like the yeah. happy one with the happy animals and happy people. And then all the people who are yeah. in the ark are like, oh, bye, you're on your trip. <laughs> See you guys later. They're we'll actually be yeah, seeing you guys later. A, a My Little Pony version that I think is going to accomplish just that. So <laughs> What's that I'm mean? making that up. Uh, a My Little Pony uh, oh, yeah, yeah. version of Noah's story. <laughs> what it happened to the dragons? It might be a little, right? not, not quite as good as the VeggieTales version. <laughs> <laughs> what happened I to the dragons? I in the theater. I took my son. No, wait, that was Jonah. Jonah, yeah, sorry, Jonah. I saw it in the theater. Jonah. Yeah, the, the the funny thing is, I, I'm I'm very convinced. Are, are you guys familiar with sight and sound? What is? I'm familiar with the senses of sight and sound because I use <laughs> yeah, them. There's, there's Tell a, me about this sight and this sound. How, how there, is this there's work? a close to where I live in central Pennsylvania. There's a, a famous movie, uh, not movie theater, a, a theater uh, for plays, a uh, Christian theater called Sight and Sound, uh, and they put on. Uh, really, really, really elaborate performances based on Bible stories, and one of which was Noah. Uh-huh. And they have like real animals that are walking through the aisles, and they yeah, have, like, it sounds like uh, something they do in Branson, Missouri. My wife went to see that. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. I'm following I think you now. That, that might, I think there's another sight and sound out there. Yeah. I think that it was just very successful. I mean, like yeah. it's it's a huge, huge, huge production thing. Um, My wife but said they, they did an altar call at the end of the performance. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's that kind of you know. It's, it's that it's that kind of of theater experience. It's very very heavy handed. Passion play. Passion play. I guess. I, I, uh, I don't. I don't yeah, know. What is the term for this? Well, but it's, it's, it's evangelical it's outreach disguised as theater. Yeah, <laughs> disguised as theater. Kind of, kind huh. of. I mean, it's really really well done theater. Like you won't find oh, yeah. a stage. Um, and a, a, a tech crew that's quite as elaborate as something along these lines, um, but it's so like I hate I hate to use this word, but it's so like evangelicalized, yeah, um, yeah, like specifically geared towards 
what is the popular Christian tradition of these things. So, like, when I saw the, their creation story, you have, like, a six-foot-tall, um, uh, basically slightly better than a mascot version of a serpent. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he talks, and, and that's, that's kind of the, the way that they handled that part of the story. Um, and G- Jesus is the one who makes Adam, of course, um, because everyone knows what Jesus looks like. It's hard to represent God, so... <laughs> We'll just make Jesus create Adam. <laughs> and, and Jesus made everything, so they're, they're you know, they're not theologically off base, I guess. Well, if it's a Scandinavian like, with, uh, with a sash. Um. <laughs> That's Jesus. Okay, yeah. With yeah. a beard and long yeah, hair. Yeah, he is. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus was white. We all know that. Yeah. And, he had, and, he had, and he had long hair. Everyone knows that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and Jesus could fly. Everybody knows this. Come on. <laughs> and a trendy beard. Yeah. So, so uh, it's like they took the play Peter Pan and then they just put Jesus in the Peter Pan role and just make him fly around. It's it's not it's not quite now, that. an example of theater with a Christian concept that I saw recently that I liked was um, a, a stage presentation of The Great Divorce, which is a C.S. Lewis novel, and the company that performs it I thought did a great job. The story is about a bus load of people that are taken from hell essentially to heaven, and they get to experience heaven and make the choice if they want to stay or not. And uh, I don't want to spoil it, but many of them prefer hell, yeah. which is sort of, the uh, I think, an interesting concept. And at the end of it, the uh, creator of it came out just for about a 10-minute question-and-answer session. So there wasn't any um, direct call to faith. And I'm not saying there's not a place for that, but yeah. I thought it was fitting in this case of a theater setting where the person just kind of made himself available and vulnerable to uh, to answer any questions that yeah. people might ask. And like, why did he choose to write this scene from the book in this way and yeah. uh, and that kind of thing? And it just left to me like a, a door open. And I did happen to see in their, their newsletter that they send out that somebody had attended their show and then started to um, – to meet with the people that that she went to the show with, and actually did come to faith just through uh, going to see that play initially, and then learning more about about the faith. So huh. I kind of like it in that aspect when you talk about the arts and uh, yeah. inspiration. Yeah. yeah. Apologies to anyone I insulted. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, we should probably redirect this back to video games. Yeah. So, so, oh, yeah, so we haven't talked so about the it. question. Question that I have is: Are you? When it comes to video games, do you ha- would you say that there are particular video games uh, that do exploration and Christian, not Christian, but theological frameworks that complement your play style? Hmm. So here's the interesting thing. I like games that are designed rather than kind of randomly generated and or, um, you know, kind of just open spaces. So I, I, I'll... Hmm. I'll kind of have this example since i've been playing dark souls right dark souls is a very much constructed uh example so mm-hmm. everything in dark souls obviously is intricately designed everything kind of flows together this is a world that kind of feels lived in because of the way they've made this right they've right. kind of gone through all the questions what happened here what happened there how does this fit into the world how does this work too on the other end of the spectrum you've kind of got skyrim and Elder Scrolls mm-hmm. sort of thing, which is, okay, we'll make the world as big as possible, and then there'll be randomly generated dungeons here and there. No, no, no. Not random, though. <laughs> no, they're not random. They're all designed. Yeah, they're designed in a way, but no, they're not they, like... No, they, they feel all random. They That's feel the difference random. Between, have you played Skyrim? 
I have not played Skyrim. I played so, Oblivion, but so I know Oblivion that those is all random generated. So, Are they? Oh, yeah, Oblivion okay. is is Lego generated. Um, that's that's what Skyrim, I'm from. Yeah. Skyrim is all hand designed, okay. so that the the actual structure of each of the dungeons they all they kind of all end up having a a looping quality. So even if you get to like what you think might be the very back of the dungeon, you might find out that you're actually like right back towards the entrance, and you just have to flip a lever, and then you can come back into the main room. Huh, that makes sense. But that's that's the difference between Skyrim and Oblivion. That's yeah, not because to say that. I played Oblivion, and I know Oblivion had the randomly generated stuff, and I was bored to death. <laughs> I played yeah. some Oblivion, and I played some Skyrim. It's one of those things uh, that I'd like to go back to. I, I feel like I just barely touched the surface on it, and literally did you know the first couple parts of the storyline but the uh the largeness of it was almost intimidating to me it was almost like well, i don't have enough time to do this yeah <laughs> for me elder scrolls i didn't really feel any incentive to explore i just kind of felt lost and this is weird That's how to i me. thought at first for yeah. sure i mean but, it took me a long time to figure out how to actually embrace this world and then, like, on Dark Souls, for whatever reason, I find it much more accessible to me, which doesn't seem to make much sense, because Dark Souls is like, okay, they start you in one spot, right? They do a tutorial, you fight a boss, then you end up in the Firelink Shrine, which is kind of the central hub of the world, and then there's three directions you can go. Two directions lead to, uh, most likely, your death. Yeah. If you go down those roads, you'll probably die on your first trip. But if you go down the other road you will that's where you're supposed to go and the game doesn't tell you this it just kind of says well here you go here's three different paths two of these will kill you one of yeah. them will not and we don't care and yeah. we'll figure it out pretty fast yeah. so <laughs> but that to me made a lot more sense than kind of like you go into elder scrolls and they're like oh the intro's over now do whatever <laughs> yeah yeah i i like it uh, directed and i can feel the design even though it's not directly stated to me. I know where it's going. And that's where I get kind of get my Christian leaning here, which is that there's kind of this objective truth to the whole universe. And everything's constructed in a, in a way that I can perceive, but not so directly that I can, you know, kind of point out every single individual detail. But I know it's there, if that makes sense. Yeah. Interesting. Ted, what are you, what are you playing lately? And does it relate to the subject much? The closest thing that I can say that I've been playing lately that we're and Uh-oh, it looks like we're losing you, Ted. Oh, no! You. Oh, yeah! <laughs> <What>? um, <laughs> this is so random because we just missed whatever you just said. Yeah, I think my internet is not doing well, so yeah, uh, Lego right. Undercover. There we go. Oh, nice. On the Wii U. I think it's an exclusive for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um, it does have a storyline, but it's a huge city. And it's one of these things, too, in the design of it that I don't like. The The element of the game that doesn't feel like exploration is that I've got this huge city to explore. However, I can only really explore it after I've beaten the game because then I will have unlocked all the different characters that allow me to go into certain areas. So, like, there's one area where you have to have been the robber to use a crowbar to get in and, and explore. So I don't, I, I feel like I'm in a case, a situation of restricted exploration. And certainly there's no feeling of danger in this game. I mean, the worst that can happen if I get beat up is I shatter into a million Lego pieces and uh, maybe lose some, my score a little bit or on yeah. some level. 
So it, it's a kind of a good family exploration game, though. I could see if I had a, a young son or daughter, that that would be something that we would do together yeah. and en- enjoy. Engaging in Lego on Lego violence. <laughs> yeah. Has, has your son been around lately? Like, have you been able to play games with him at all in the, in the recent months? That's interesting that you uh, mentioned that. He came, uh, I guess, two weeks ago in between his – he does quarters at his school. Cool. And um, huh. he – came to spend a couple nights and we had one night where we had some game time and we wanted to uh he had heard me talk about that i had played brothers a oh, tale of awesome. two sons yeah, how'd you so, do that did you ha- hold like half the controller and he held the other half no i i watched him play it because i had already oh. beaten oh. it so yeah but no that would have been interesting con- yeah to try that out and see how that goes some exploration to it but it's definitely a guided uh story story oh, yeah absolutely yeah cool cool yeah, so um, I, I was I, I was trying to think about this subject, and I, I asked uh, Zach last night, like, "What are we talking about again?" And I could have just gone to the back that back to the beginning of the email thread because I was obviously out of it. Um, but uh, uh, so I've I've had a good good uh, sleep time to to think about this subject. Um, a good I've, sleep I've, time. Yeah. <laughs> so um, usually we call that sleep. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, but yeah, the game that I've been playing is uh, Dishonored Knife of Dunwall slash Brigmar Witches, huh. um, which is, uh, and I, I combine those two, uh, anybody who's, who's not too familiar with this knows that there are two different DLCs, um, two, two different downloadable packages for the game. But it's interesting because they're completely linked Mass Effect style. So you finish the one DLC and then you go into the next one and then it's like, would you like to import your save? You say yes and you just continue with the entire same loadout that you've earned. Um, all the same uh, chaos that you've, you've engendered, whether or not you've killed people or whether or not you've been um, a, a non-lethal uh, shadow of sorts. And so, and of course, for me, I, I prefer to play my... Uh, my if, if a game gives me stealth options, I'm going to try to be as non-lethal and non-seen non, uh, as possible. Um, and, and I play in a very, very meticulous... Oh, crap, someone saw me... Re- uh, Reload quick save. <laughs> you do that? Oh my goodness! Yeah, it's 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 awful to watch. Like you do not want to be in the room while I'm playing a game like this because it's it's just uh, half the game is is maybe maybe not half the game, but at least a ten percent of my time is loading screens. Um, <laughs> and uh, the the point the point in this is that um, this this series casts you as one of the antagonists of the Dishonored uh, main game as Dowd. Who's kind of a, who's the assassin who killed the empress at the beginning of of uh, di- the, the the dishonored game, and so it gives you this option to uh, how do you want to play? And when you play as uh, the typical go and kill everybody kind of assassin character, um, I'm sure that gives you one ending. I haven't seen that ending because um, I uh, can't help but want to play the game as a on the redemptive path. And it's interesting because as you as you choose to deal with your problems through non-lethal means, it shapes the narrative and causes uh, the world around you to become quite literally a better place. Um, and it, it just has this quality of uh, redemptive leanings, like the, just that, that he... You're playing as a bad guy and he can become not so bad of a guy. He can try to atone for his sins, if you will, uh, by, by becoming a... Uh, well, he still steals a lot, but <laughs> <laughs> but 
But the, 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 the core of the game that's the most interesting to me is that it really is a uh, stealth sandbox, a stealth, and uh, a testimony to brilliant level design. The levels um, in Dishonored, I, I can't emphasize enough how much they engender multiple playthroughs just to see how you can try something in different ways, and which is the same thing that, that uh, Deus Ex, um, the original Deus Ex, really created, was this try different things, go different routes, um, go in through a, a, a vent instead of going in through a back door, hack into this, instead of, or find a key to get into this particular location, uh, or talk to this person or bribe that person to be able to get over here. Um, yeah. And those levels in Dishonored are really big. <laughs> yeah. That's what yeah. I found anyway. I've played like the first three levels. They're gigantic. And yeah. they've definitely gone through every single way of figuring out how you can go in these various directions depending yeah. on what you want to do. Like if you want to kill every person in the whole thing, so be it. Like I do. <laughs> yeah. And that's, and that's a valid option. Um, and w- what I personally like about the Knife of Dunwall and Brigmore Witches is that you have – um, a greater tool set specifically for uh, non-lethal play. So you have um, choke dust, which makes does does the Batman like here's here's a, a pile of smoke and makes everyone cough and get disoriented <laughs> so and tap them out or whatever you want to do. <laughs> or the uh, shock traps, which you can set right next to people and you know that's gonna like just stun them and knock them out. Um, Anyway, the, the the point being that I I love games that give you a uh, stealth sta- stealth sandbox, um, and I actually even liked, which blew my mind that I actually liked it. But I liked Ground Zeroes, uh, the Metal Gear Solid game that recently came out. Oh, you played it? Yeah, I played through. Uh, I only played through the main quest, and I really, really didn't like. Uh, you know, Kojima's handling of women always is terrible. Oh, the the plot is really really extreme this time around. I gotta say. Did you play it too? No, but I read up on it, and I really think it's over the top. <laughs> well, every, every every Metal Gear Solid game's plot is retarded. Oh, um, this this is not, like, retarded. <laughs> I mean, once you start getting into rape, that's when I get off Wait, the train. what? Yeah, there's a lot of implications in a lot of the audio logs as to what happened to oh. Paz and whatever his name is, but yeah. Yeah, I didn't get the audio logs, but Yeah, that's... if you... No. <laughs> If you okay, so listen to those, don't do that. All right, yeah, it gets really disturbing real quick. Yeah, because because whatever happened to her is really bad. Um, I got that much. Um, yeah, <laughs> but the so how about that latest version of Thief? Have you played that? Because that no. would be right up your alley. There, it sounds like. Uh, huh? <laughs> well, it's not like the original Thief. It's more of a uh, linear stealth experience. Yeah, and, and that's so that's the thing that like every every review that I've I've read about the new thief makes it sound a lot less like a stealth sandbox and I'm a lot more like you've got to play it the way this exact this exact way and you have like very li- limited range of movement. Yeah, which is um, fine. It's just different, but uh-huh. which compared to Dishonored is is just not as good. So Dishonored almost sounds like more like the uh, the true successor to the original Thief. Yeah, uh, the, yeah, yeah, very much so. It actually bar- it's basically a combination of of Thief, Deus Ex, and uh, maybe Bioshock's st- use of like magic. Only it's a lot more useful than Bioshock yeah. ever made it. But Thief doesn't have teleporting, so it's right, a bit right. <laughs> and so Dishonored's use of like the teleportation and like the the, the magic that you, you you get to use in that um, makes it. Um, I don't know. It's. It, I just find it very in, ingenious how they how they designed everything, and and the one difference between the, the main Dishonored and 
the, this DLC is that um, Dowd can basically freeze time whenever he teleports. So you have a lot of time to think about exactly where you want to go, even if you're in the middle of like in the middle of the air. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think that games that make exploration worth it are really cool because a lot of games don't know how to actually reward their player for exploring or to make yeah. it innately interesting. Yeah, I mean, and- but like, I, you know, like collectathons, we all kind of had our little joy and fixation mm. on that for a bit. At the yeah, end well, of the back, back when we were 13. Well, back when we did that. But now games kind of have to do something a little more to make exploration interesting. But yeah, so in, in any case, like the one thing, the, uh, the things that I, I find very, very endearing about uh, any, any game is when you have a, a sandbox through which you can uh, explore the, the, the limits of stealth and hiding and how to uh, get through a map. And one, that's one thing that Ground Zeroes does pretty well is, is the, the way that you can get from, it, it makes it very legitimately difficult to get through the map. Um, without being seen, but it also is just a very, very large map with a diversity of approaches. Yeah. I, uh, Dark Souls is pretty similar, it, but the interconnectivity means that, like, well, while there is, if you come in from one direction, there's really just one set path that you're going to go through, right? Here's the enemy setup. The enemy setup's always going to be the same, except for, and they're all going to respawn in the same spots. But if you come in from a different direction, you have to approach things in a slightly different way. Yeah. And depending on your equipment setup and your class and a yeah. bunch of other factors, you're going to have to deal with each and every obstacle in a slightly different way. I mean, for me, I'm a big heavy tank guy. I like just hit it, taking hits to the face. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's good Is that for me. Is that working out for you in, Desa- in, yeah, in, in uh, Dark Souls? Yeah, pretty much. Apparently, I've picked the easiest way to go through the game, which is really? just kind of pick heavy armor and a shield and just kind of wail in enemies until they die. Because mm-hmm. there's a statistic called poise, which basically determines whether or not when you get hit, you'll get staggered in the middle of the hit. And I have the armor with the highest poise in the game, or at least pretty close to it. So I just like go right through the hits that they take. And, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't matter. I'll just hit huh. you with my giant Y-hander and you'll die. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah, no, I, my, my problem is the fact that I want to play the exact opposite way, which is to be as, as light as a feather. And, you can do that. And to just not get hit. <laughs> well, if you play like Ranger or something, you could definitely do that. I mean, you yeah. can shoot arrows from afar, but... I don't even know how you're going to get past certain things in the game. Well, the also thing is that that makes that the arrows in Dark Souls all cost you souls. So, yeah, well, they're not expensive. It depends on what kind of souls you're, to, you know, what kind yeah. of arrows like Dragon Slayer ones are expensive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah. there are a lot of different ways to go through that game. It just depends on how you want to deal with things and wh- how much you know. <laughs> About yeah, the systems absolutely. to play. Oh, I didn't know if it was either you rambling on about something or Josh <laughs> rambling on about something. But <laughs> and you like, the, and I know you're a big fan of Legend of Zelda, Ted. So certainly, yeah. It, why do you like the exploration elements in Zelda? Well, part of it is nostalgia because it's one of the first games that I ever truly experienced that. Uh, Link to the Past would be the example that I think of. Yeah. In in the case where I wasn't used to such large games, so I played the beginning part of the game. I thought I rescued Zelda and got her to the sanctuary. I thought that was the end of the game, and then it was mm-hmm. like, no, you got to go to these three things. I was like, you're kidding! So I go and do these three other temples and everything, and then go fight the person. And I'm like, all right, what? 
there's like six more? And then, you know, it just got bigger and bigger and bigger the more I played it at the time. Because, you know, I was used to, again, fiddle dee dee. <laughs> You're coming in delayed. I think that's Sorry, guys. Yeah, it's, okay. it's it's on my end. I will just have to uh, to pick this up on the next the next video. That's right. I uh, think we're pretty much next podcast. That's okay. I think we're pretty much at, at our close anyway. Yeah, I, I don't think, think I really have anything else to say. <laughs> yeah, because otherwise we're just going to keep talking about video games. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so hey, did you guys see that this came out? Yeah, it's the best. <laughs> I am so bummed because I wanted to share this story with you, but if the audio is bad, it's not worth it. But uh, it was a true uh, story of God working in the country of Senegal. Maybe you can record it and then send it to me later. I'll do that. Yeah. I'll do that. If you can send it in a, a WAV, that'd be the uh, best. Okay. A wave? Okay. All right. Yeah. I'll yeah. do that. Highest okay? quality possible. That way I can just kind of throw it in there. Yeah, that'll be awesome. Then, then it'll give me something to, to look forward to when I was re-listen to this podcast. Yeah, and I'll insert it in here, and I'll say, hey, Ted, tell us your story. And yeah, perfect. <laughs> All right. I'll work with that for sure. All right. All right. I'll well, Talk to you guys later. Yep. All right. So this has been the Theology Gaming Podcast. If you'd like to listen to more of our stuff or read more of our stuff, go to theologygaming.com. <laughs> Or go on iTunes and look us up, subscribe, give us a five-star rating, helps us out a lot. If you'd like to see more of Josh's stuff, he's at Love Subverts, and he's also at Game Church. And you just wrote a Game Church article, right? Yeah, it was about Tengami. Yeah, which is um, about paper folding and walking slowly in medieval Japan. Yeah, and, and it's about rest. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and if you'd like to see Ted's stuff, he's at wallmanted.com. I've said a lot of this already, I'm sure. <laughs> if you listen to this with any regularity, you've kind of heard me before. If you have any questions, email us at questions at theologygaming.com. If you'd like to openly communicate with us at a regular basis, we also have a Facebook group, which is called Theology Gaming University. Right now, we have a book club where we're playing Chlor- Chrono Trigger, so if you want to play Chrono Trigger with us, we're going to do another podcast on that. Uh, which is not a book. No, it's not a book, but <laughs> book club sounds cool. And is that it? I think so. Okay, that's the Theology Gaming Podcast. Say goodbye. Love you guys. Bye-bye. Bye.